just a few more weeks in this long series on the book of Genesis. As we come to the conclusion of Jacob's life and of the story of Joseph. But this morning we will be looking at the family of Israel settling in to Egypt and the provision of the Lord in that regard. If you would please give attention to God's holy word. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient, and it is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now... Please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few And evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we ask, O Lord, that you would use your word mightily with us this morning. That you would teach us. That you would convict us of sin. And that you would comfort us with the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself how we are to relate to the world? How are we to serve in this world? How are we to help others around us? It seems more and more each day, incidents come up 
that cause us great tension and turmoil as we try to think about what we are to do as the people of God and yet in the same time, how to be involved in the lives of those around us. To be ambassadors for Christ while standing for God's holiness. Are we only supposed to be on the defensive? I think oftentimes this is what the church at large thinks. That we are to be on the defensive, somehow keeping the world at arm's length at all times. Protecting ourselves and our children against all of the bad stuff out there. And whatever happens to them, they deserve. Are we only to be about protecting ourselves? Or do we have a duty as ambassadors of Christ to be salt and light in the world? As we think about God's covenant, as we have seen it go from Abraham to Isaac to Israel and now to Joseph, we can be tempted to see God's blessings coming to us because we are His people. And somehow, God owes us these blessings. And that if we want to have success and blessing, God will bring it to us in the context of this covenant alone. And we don't see God's goodness extending beyond that. And there are two great dangers for us. The first is it affects the way we relate to our friends and neighbors. And the second is there is a temptation to us to somehow think we are earning the blessings of God by what we have done, by our faithfulness, by our obedience. This morning, I would like us to look in Genesis 47 at the blessings of God's covenant as they come not only to us, but to all of the world. Because you see, our God is not a stingy God. He brings indeed great blessings to God's people. We experience great blessings by being in covenant with God. But you see, those blessings overflow. They go beyond merely the people of God. Because God desires to bless His people, His blessings overflow out into the world. And we can see this and be thankful for it. But there is a third and final thing that we must remember. Not only do blessings come to God's people, and not only do those blessings overflow to the world, but we have to remember that the greatest blessings are yet to come. We must not focus so much on the blessing that we forget the blesser. So let us look then this morning at the blessings to God's people, the blessings as they overflow to the world, and blessings yet to come. So this is a wonderful example of a reminder to us that God looks out for His people. You know the story by now. Israel and his sons have come now to Egypt the only place, it seems, in the world where food has been found. How will they get food? They are strangers. They are pilgrims. As we saw at the end of chapter 46 and the beginning of this chapter, they even have a really bad profession. What they do for a living is hated by the Egyptians. How will God provide for them? Well, the answer, you know, has been God's providence. God was providing for them 
decades ago in seemingly horrible, sinful actions of His people. You see, God was providing for them in this moment by the bringing of Joseph to Egypt, by the sufferings that Joseph would endure, and by putting Joseph at the right hand of Pharaoh. Providence indeed has set the stage for all of this. Egypt and the food are now ready for the Israelites because God has done this. I think oftentimes as we think about our own lives, we think merely in terms of snapshots. We wonder how we will get through today or some event a month from now or a year from now. And we wonder what God will do right now or right at that time. And we think it all depends on the moment. But you see, the Lord our God is at work throughout all of our days. And even preceding us in His grand providence, He prepares all things for the execution of His will. This is why none can gainsay Him. There is no plan that can come against infinite Eternal wisdom. God is providing for His people by setting the stage with providence. But it isn't just something that occurs in a vacuum. It isn't just something that occurs out there. This is also something that occurs in the lives of His people. There is a preparation, a wisdom that is needed. And Joseph shows this. Now, it's, it's an interesting story here. Joseph's family has come, and Joseph is now preparing to introduce his family to Pharaoh. And he does, he does two things as a wise man. He goes to his family and he says, now listen, this is what Pharaoh is going to ask you. This is what you need to answer. It's the truth. You need to tell him the truth. Don't worry about that they don't like shepherds. Trust me. He's going to ask you this. This is what you have to answer. Because what we're going to try and get is the land of Goshen. And then he goes one step further. He goes to Pharaoh. And he begins to lay the foundation. He says, you know, my family's come. They're going to come and meet you in just a little bit. You know what would be really nice? The land of Goshen. That would be good. Now, he's, he's greasing the skids. He's laying the tracks. Anyone with children knows how this works. Right? The children want something. Your child may perhaps want a new computer. And all of a sudden, he begins to volunteer how much more efficient he'd be at homework with a computer. And and how he could do so many other good things, you know, if he only had a computer. And then, lo and behold, he asks you for a computer. You see, Joseph here is laying the groundwork. And, And I think we need to understand here that there is absolutely nothing wrong with using wisdom as the people of God. Because we trust the Lord, because we understand His providence rules over everything, does not make us passive. It makes us actually active. We expect success. We expect God's will to be done. And then we must use the wisdom that He has given to us 
as the means to bring this about. So Joseph goes and he speaks in advance to Pharaoh. He also does something else that I think is very wise. We don't know all of the details, but you can imagine them. He's got 12 brothers. He only brings five. You can just imagine the conversation in the family ahead of time. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take five of you. Benjamin, because the Pharaoh will like him. Judah, because he's learned and he knows what he's doing. No way am I bringing Simeon or Levi. They'll get in an argument with Pharaoh. It's the last thing I need. You guys, sit down. We'll come and report back. And you can imagine as he goes through it, he picks the five most presentable, most obedient, least offensive of his brothers. Because we have to remember here, his brothers are a work in progress. (laughs) They may have turned a corner here, and they may have repented of past actions, but they've still got decades of personality to sand down. And so Joseph does this, and he comes and he stands before Pharaoh. And God is now using Pharaoh and using this presentation as a means to provide for his people. Now, could God have caused grain to simply come up from out of the ground in Canaan? Of course he could have. Could God have brought rain to Canaan? Of course he could have. Could God have miraculously caused the bags of grain to multiply for Israel and his family? Of course he could have. But he didn't. Now, I want you to understand this. This does not make God less powerful. This does not make God less God. It is simply the Lord God in His wisdom providing for His people through means. The Lord provides for you through means. He provides for you and for your families through your jobs and your hard work. The worst testimony a Christian could have is to say, God will provide everything, so therefore, I'll just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. I don't need to be involved. I can wait for manna to come from heaven. But you see, this chapter completely belies that. God is working here in the lives of Joseph and his family and they are taking pains to be wise and to work hard and to bring about success. And it's not just the preparation. It's even in the presentation itself. Pharaoh comes to the brothers in verse 3 and guess what? He asks them exactly what Joseph said. He would ask them, What is your occupation? Now, you see, if Joseph had not prepared them, they might have been tempted to say, oh, we are farmers. Oh, um, we are soldiers. To try and pick some kind of occupation that they thought would have better influence on Pharaoh. You, You don't pick an occupation that you think is going to make somebody angry. Right? If I was to meet someone and want to persuade them to do something in this current climate, I would not, when they walked up, when I walked up to them and they asked me what I did for a living, I would not say, you know, I'm an IRS agent in charge of approving 501c4 
corporations. Right? You don't want to lead with that. And that's almost where they are. You have to understand this. The Egyptians can't stand shepherds. It's like being a tax man. But you see, Joseph has taught them to trust in the Lord. And what they need to be is to be truthful. This is breaking a pattern that the brothers have been in for a very long time. Right? Where's Joseph? I don't know. Anybody seen this cloak? Right? They've been living a lie for decade upon decade. And now as God has impressed upon them the need for truth, Joseph has them doing the correct thing. So God is providing for them, but He is also protecting them. He's protecting them from life's troubles. We see over and over again that this famine in Canaan is very severe. Look at verse 4. They can't live there because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And again in verse 13. There was no food in all the land and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So God has protected them from one of the worst aspects of life. This is something very difficult for you and for me to understand. Right? Because let's face it. Our idea of being hungry is we get very busy and we skip lunch. Or maybe we don't get to dinner until late at night. We don't go days. We don't go weeks without eating, do we? You need to picture here the kind of severe famine is the kind of thing you see on television screens in Africa with people who look like skeletons. Big distended bellies. They're not concerned whether they get food that they like. They're concerned whether they will die. And God is protecting His people from this. He brings them into the only place where they could be protected. And not only does He give them food, He gives them a great blessing. You see, they settle in the best of the land and they are feasting in Goshen. They go from want and poverty to plenty. But there's another protection that is going on here. It's not just protection of the body. It's also protection of the soul. Because you see, this land of Goshen is known for two things. Food. And it's on the outskirts. Goshen is that land, if you are... Picturing in your mind's eye a map of Egypt. It is on the eastern side of Egypt, eastern side of the Nile. It is away from the big cities. It is away from the capital. It is away from the palace. It is the hinterlands. Good Egyptians don't want to live there. Nothing cool is happening in Goshen. It's the sticks. And you see here, what God is doing is He is preserving His people from interrelating and intermarrying with the Egyptians so they lose their identity. God knows they're going to be living in this land for 400 years. Do you know what 400 years will do to a people? Let me ask you this question. Today, what does it mean to be Irish? It pretty much means wearing green on St. Patrick's Day. 
What does it mean to be Italian? It means liking to eat spaghetti. Right? What does it mean to be German? It means that you like bratwurst and sauerkraut. Right? That's not what it meant a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago it meant you spoke a different language. And you didn't marry people from another nationality. And you did things completely different. You lived in a completely different area. You lived in little Italy or little Poland or little Germany. You didn't mix. Now, a hundred years later, we're all indistinguishable, aren't we? You see, that's what time will do when you are with others When you intermarry, now there's nothing wrong with that, but here, the people of God, if they were to intermarry, if they were to lose their identity, then it would be like the church losing its identity. It would be as if we decided that a good thing for the summer would be on a weekly basis to bring in an imam and to bring in a rabbi and to bring in a Buddhist and to have a great mix of religions. Pretty soon, we would lose our distinctiveness. And you see, God is protecting His people from this. You see, we tend to think we are the ones that will protect the Christian character of the church and of America. But that is not true. It is God that protects His people and His church. God is always at work keeping a seed Keeping His people together. Keeping them focused on the mission. Keeping them focused on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we see a wonderful example of it here in the blessing of the covenant. Let me ask you a question. Are you retaining your distinctiveness for Jesus Christ? To use a biblical analogy, are you still salty? Do you still have light in your life? Do others see and taste the living God when you are around? You see, that's what we are called to do. We are recalled to retain that distinction. But you see, we do not retain that distinction in isolation. Because the blessings of the covenant do not just come to us. They overflow out into the world. There are a great many general blessings that are out there. We call this theologically common grace. You might think of the biblical story that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We don't know who's a Christian because they're the only ones breathing air. They're the only ones getting water. You see, that blessing flows out To all. But what we have to understand as the church, in order to have our mission be God's mission, is that the rain falls on the unjust because it falls on the just. It is not random. Because God will provide for His people, others are the recipients of His blessing. And if they do not acknowledge Him and confess Him and by faith believe in the One that He has sent, then they will be judged for not honoring Him for those blessings. You see, those blessings are evidence that God is there and that He is good and that He is just. 
And, and this happens here for Egypt. Now think about this. You're an Egyptian. You had seven years of plenty. Why? Because you were good? Because you really knew how to make that Egyptian clothing. Because you loved the river Nile. No, the only reason you had seven years of plenty is because God was providing it for His people. And there is a continued provision here. There is grain that is stored up. Why is this stored up? It's because God has given even specific mercies that overflow to you. God has placed His wise servant Joseph at the throne of Pharaoh. And He has done that for this moment so that Israel and His children might come in and settle into Egypt and so that His will and prophecy might be fulfilled. That is the big picture. Right? But guess what? Joe Egyptian benefits. We might listen to this story from Joseph and think, how mean Joseph is. He, he takes all their money. And, and then he takes their livestock. And, and then he takes their land. Until we think that the Philistines are dying. And the Ethiopians are dying. Everyone else is dying. And the Egyptians are not because God has given them Joseph. What a blessing. I think that's one thing that the church needs to remember and to enact. It is easy to say to ourselves, America has been blessed through the church. And we can rightly rattle off everything that God has blessed America with. The reason we have hospitals is because of the church. The reason that we have universities is because of the church. The reason that we have charities is because of the church. The church began and worked through all of these things. But you see, our temptation is to say, this is true, America is not grateful or thankful, and therefore, we will be miserable. And we will accuse them. And we will flee from them. And we will hope they get what they deserve. But the question I ask you is this. How is America in 2013 any different than Egypt in Genesis 47? Why are we to flee from America? Why are we to flee from our communities? Why are we to hold back our blessings? You see, God gives to us so abundantly that we are also to be a blessing to others. You see, what's happening here is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 2. Where God comes to Abraham and He tells him that He has made a covenant with him. And what will happen is this. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. You see, what is happening here is God is blessing Joseph and his family. And that is flowing out into the world. This is the way that God relates to the world. Let me give you one counterexample. We have this Pharaoh who listens to Joseph, who follows God's will as much as he knows it, and his kingdom is preserved, and his people are sustained. Contrast that with another Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus 1, who does not know Joseph, 
and does not honor God and who thinks in his own worldly wisdom that the best way to success is to put his foot on the neck of the people of God. How'd that work out for him? The people of God suffered in slavery, but eventually what happened? His whole kingdom was destroyed. You see, the only way to succeed, the only way to be blessed is to know the blesser. For a time, you might get the overflow, but it will not always be there. And so if you are living off the borrowed capital of others, if you are enjoying the blessings that come to this land and this world because of the faith of others, you are in a place of grave danger. Because you think everything's okay. And you think someone will be there always to provide. But they will not. You see, the only way you can know true blessing is to know the blesser. And now is the time, not next month, not next year, now is the time to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because you see, thirdly and finally, the greatest thing that we see are the blessings that are yet to come. Israel and his family are the recipients of great blessings. But we see also that he is someone who is not satisfied with what the world can give. He's not satisfied with these temporary blessings. He knows what real value is. It's very interesting. He comes up before Pharaoh. And where his sons are trembling and saying, we are your servants and what can we do? Israel just sort of walks in. And and he does something that is, is actually quite shocking if you... If you understand it, what he does is he comes in and he blesses Pharaoh, not once, but twice. And the thing about that that's shocking is that the Bible tells us that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Who is this guy? He's walking into the king in the most powerful country in the world, and he's not really phased by it. Shouldn't he be impressed with all the gold? Shouldn't he be impressed with all the armies? Shouldn't he be impressed with all the wealth? No. Not because there's not gold. Not because there are no armies. Not because there is not wealth. No, Jacob is not impressed because once you have come face to face with the living God, kings and presidents are nobodies. They don't phase you. You know that whatever is good is a pale shadow of what God has for us. And so, he has not only patience with Pharaoh, but he has a proper perspective as well. Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? Now, you have to understand, for Pharaoh, Jacob is a really old guy. The Egyptians only thought you could possibly live to 110. And they were obsessed with immortality, right? What did the Egyptians invent? Embalming, right? And when they would bury a pharaoh, they'd put his cats and some food. And if they were unlucky, a couple of wives, all in the tomb with him. Okay? Because they were obsessed with immortality. And Pharaoh looks at Jacob and he says, 
wow, how old are you? And Jacob looks at him and he says, well, my days have been few. And he's not being humble. He's saying, I'm almost spent and my father lived way more than me. And my grandfather lived a lot longer than me. And you know what? I met people that lived 600, 700 years. So let me tell you, they're few. And they're evil. I've had a lot of heartache. I've had a lot of sorrow. I'm looking for what's next. I'm not satisfied with the life that I have now. And you know what? If I might translate this to our modern context, Jacob might come to Houston and go to a very popular minister and look at him in the face and say, let me tell you, I am glad this is not my best life now. My best life is coming. This is nothing compared to what God has prepared for me. You see, he understands there is something beyond the here and the now. And when we have this mentality, the world cannot get after us. The world cannot make us afraid. Because after all, what can the world do to you? It could take some stuff you have, right? It could take your life, couldn't it? But other than that, can the world take heaven from you? Can the world take Jesus from you? Then what is that? You see, we put it in perspective here. When we look to the promise, when we look to the blessings to come, we're not worried about losing some blessings here. We're not hoarding manna. We're not hoarding things that God has given to us. We're not jealous of what others have because we say, this is just a taste. This is like when you go into the restaurant and you wonder about what meal you should order and the waiter brings out just a bite, just a bite. And he says, I really think you'll like this. Why don't you order it? And you taste it. It's, oh, it's wonderful. And you say, yes, I definitely want that. And then what do you have to do? You have to wait, don't you? You savor what you've got, but you have to wait for what's coming. And that's, in an earthly way, what the people of God are doing. They're passing through this world, sojourning, like Jacob says, focused upon the promises of God. That's why at the end of this passage, he comes to his son Joseph and he says, Swear to me that you will not bury me here. In Egypt. This is not superstition. You see, in his last days, Jacob wants to look to the promise. And he wants everyone in his family to look to the promise. He wants them to know that the promised land is where they belong. That with God is where they belong. And whether it's in plenty in Egypt or in slavery in Egypt, what they should be looking forward to is being with the living God. Do you have that kind of mentality and hope and purpose? You see, that's what defines a Christian. Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 11 and verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You are amongst the most powerful and wealthy people that the earth has ever known. You go in your home and flip a switch and the temperature changes. You flip another switch and it is light. You open up a box and food from all over the world comes out to you. But do you seek a better country? Do you seek a heavenly city? For you see, when you do that, God is not ashamed to be called your God. And He is preparing for you a place at His side where you will worship Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever. That is your end, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a city that awaits you. Let's go on the journey together and let us round up everyone else that we can to join us to the glory of King Jesus. Let's pray.